Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 24 and 25 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to invite you to imagine with me for a moment. Imagine being imprisoned for your faith and enduring periods of solitary confinement. Open Doors International, a ministry that serves persecuted Christians worldwide, they tell the story of Doc, a believer from the country of Laos. Doc spent 13 years in prison for sharing his personal testimony with others after his conversion, sharing the gospel. He was arrested one day. His wife had no idea where he was taken to or if or when she would ever see him again. He spent, in that 13-year period, he spent five and a half months in solitary confinement. Can you imagine that? The room was small, bare, cramped, and smelly. My hands and feet were handcuffed. Where I slept, I also went to the bathroom. The room was very, very dark. I couldn't see anything. They didn't let me wear anything but my underwear, he recalls. I lived in that small room for a long time and had nothing to do inside but pray and pray and pray that everyone would believe and accept Jesus. What would that do to you? What kind of toll would that take on you mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually? How would that affect you to be cut off from your family, from your home, from comforts? How would that affect you to be cut off from your church family? At the beginning of his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, it is by God's grace that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly around God's word and sacrament in this world. Not all Christians partake of this grace. The imprisoned, the sick, the lonely who live in the diaspora, that is refugees who are spread out, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible community is grace. Visible community is grace. And who knows that best? Those who in God's strange providence have little to no access to it. They are profoundly aware what a grace it is when suddenly that is taken away, the imprisoned, the sick, refugees. Do you know the grace of visible community? And more specifically, how will you avail yourself of this grace in 2023? That's what our text is about this morning. So I want to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able out of our reverence for God and his word. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, you do speak and communicate 
your very heart. You reveal yourself to us. You reveal your will to us. And you communicate your presence, your person, your power, your glory, your goodness to us. Thank you for this word. May it now dwell richly in us and accomplish everything that you intend. The purposes that you have in inspiring this word. May it bear fruit in us for your glory and for our good. Amen. You may be seated. So it's become a habit of ours at Emmaus Road Church to start each new year with a brief sermon series that we've entitled the last few years, Habits of Grace. And we get that useful phrase, Habits of Grace, from David Mathis, who literally wrote the book on it, the book called Habits of Grace. Mathis writes, my hope in reshifting the focus from spiritual disciplines, maybe you're familiar with that term, shifting the focus from spiritual disciplines to the means of grace and then the various personal habits of grace that we develop in light of them is to keep the gospel and the energy of God at the center. What Mathis means is that a lot of talk about spiritual disciplines can sometimes overemphasize our role our effort, our duty and initiative in the process, and underemphasize God's grace, God's provision. That in the end, if any change happens in us, if there's any power at work in us, it's God who lavishes that on us. He is the giver of that dynamic grace. So the means of grace are simply the channels through which God says, this is where I supply my grace to you. He's communicated those things to us in his word. Most simply, the word of God, having God's voice in his word and having his ear in prayer and belonging to Christ's body, the church. So habits of grace then are just those practices by which we receive from those channels of grace. Various practices by which we tap into those channels. So the word of God is that channel of grace. There are lots of ways to tap into it. You can read it, study it, memorize it, pray it, journal about it, meditate on it. You can hear it preached. You can discuss it with others. All kinds of habits you can practice to tap into that. Fellowship, or what we often call here gospel community, is another one of those ways that God communicates his sanctifying grace to you. That's clear here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. To begin with, Christian community is established by God's grace. We call it gospel community not only because the gospel is the focus of our attention when we gather together, but also because it's the grace of God through the gospel that produces this community. There would be no church if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is actually just the tail end of one really long sentence in Greek. In Hebrews 10, it starts back in verse 19. So we're just looking at the very end of that sentence. But listen to how that sentence begins. The author says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, and then the author goes on to three specific exhortations or commands, including this one here in verses 24 and 25, to gather regularly, to intentionally build each other up. But notice where it all begins. Since we have access to God, 
through the body and the blood of Jesus. Therefore, let us consider how to stir one another up. That word therefore in verse 19 actually reaches back not just to like the preceding sentence or paragraph, but to the entire theological argument at the center of this book, which spans from Hebrews chapter 5 through the middle of chapter 10. And in chapter 9, the author describes in detail the earthly holy place, the tabernacle. And his point is to show and prove that Jesus is a better high priest who mediates a better covenant enacted by a better sacrifice. And in conclusion, he says, Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So when verse 19 says that you and I can confidently enter the holy places, it's talking about that holy place, heaven itself. You have access to God through the body and the blood of Jesus. So here's the logic of the text. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have access to God in heaven. And now, that glorious heavenly reality is to be manifested and reflected in your gathering together with each other here on earth. That's the logic of the text. Gospel community is a direct result of God's grace toward us in the gospel. And this just takes all the pressure off of us. Community is not something that we build or we create or we try to drum up or pressure people into. It's established by the fact that Christ died to give us access to God. And there we have community with one another. So first and foremost, Gospel community is established by God's grace. But it is also a source of God's grace to you. If you find a book on spiritual disciplines and just skim through the table of contents, you probably won't find fellowship or community listed as one of the spiritual disciplines. Unless you're reading David Mathis' book, Habits of Grace. A lot of talk of spiritual disciplines focuses primarily on personal practices, Personal prayer, personal Bible reading, memorizing God's word, excellent things. But scripture is clear that the gathered church, the body of Christ, is actually one of God's appointed means through which God intends to supply you with his power and his grace to change you, to empower you, to transform you. God means to supply you with grace through his people. Verse 24 states, this is one of the goals of gospel community. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In Greek, there's this preposition in there that indicates an aim, a goal, a trajectory, a direction to all of this. Stirring up love and good works is that aim. That's what happens when we gather together. Love and good works, those are not two different things in a list of things, like you know, when you go to the store, remember to buy eggs and milk. Not two separate things. They're one thing. Loving works. Working love. Like when we say it's nice and warm in here, we don't mean two things. We mean it's, it's warm in a nice way. Right? Or when Jesus says whatever you ask and pray, he means whatever you ask in prayer. It's one thing. Love and good works is just one thing. Love is an action. Loving works, working love. Love is treating other people lawfully from the heart, as others have said. 1 John 3, 18, little children, 
Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what the author has in mind. God, through his people, stirring up in his people more of that kind of love. Love in action. And love is the summary of the whole law. The one who loves fulfills the law. Romans 13, Galatians 5, James 2. Everywhere in the New Testament. Love fulfills the law. Love is the outward expression of faith, according to Galatians 5, 6. So that means, just think about this. Sanctification is the process of being changed and transformed by God's grace into what? Into a more and more loving person. One who loves God more. One who loves people more. That is the aim of every habit of grace. To cause you to love more. That's the aim. Not just to cause you to know more, but to love more increasing and abounding in love is the evidence that God's grace is at work in his people. Philippians 1.9, Paul prays that your love may abound more and more. How much, Paul? More and more and more and more. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This is what God is doing in you. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul reflects this evidence of God's grace in that church that your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Increasing. More and more on display, evident, apparent. That's the evidence of God's grace at work in us. So just think about that personally. Is there room in your life to grow in love? Could you be a more loving spouse, perhaps? A more loving parent, a more loving sibling, friend, neighbor, coworker? Is there any room to grow in your love for the lost? This is what God is doing in his people. And belonging to visible community is one of God's appointed means to produce that, to change you, to transform you by his grace into a more loving person. So, This is what's going on in Hebrews 10. Having established that the blood of Christ cleanses your conscience, washes away your sins, secures your access to God forever, then the author of Hebrews now seeks to instruct you how to grow in that grace through visible community. And that's what I want to give our attention to the rest of the time that we have here. There are three practices or habits related to fellowship here in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Be intentional, be present, and be engaged. That's my outline. Be intentional. Verse 24. This is how to grow in the grace of visible community. Verse 24 contains the exhortation itself. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In Greek, it literally says, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. In other words, the object of your thinking is to be not things or plans or ideas, but people. Think about People and one another is just a placeholder for specific people, people with real names and real faces and real stories. And the fastest way, anytime you come across a one another in the Bible, the fastest way to take that out of the vague abstract to the personal and specific is just to fill in the names of the people you're in community with. So start with your missional community, for example. To me, this verse says, consider 
Dan and Heather. Consider Ben and Leslie. Consider Derek and Helen and Dan and Carrie and Abigail and Justin and Sarah and David and Stephanie. Think about them. Think about those people. But what does it mean to consider them? I think the Puritan John Owen is helpful here. To paraphrase, he says, to consider one another calls for diligent inspection, attentive consideration, and determined focus, as opposed to just kind of fleeting, careless thoughts. Remember, the aim, according to verse 24, is to consider others so as to stir them up or provoke them or spur them on in works of love. So how do you do that? Again, John Owen's helpful. He says, this consideration respects, this is what what to think about. When you think about people, think about the gifts, the graces, the temptations, the dangers, the seasons and opportunities for duty, the manner of the walking of one another in the church and in the world. That is, you are in community with real people who have real stories, and they are the real objects of God's grace. They are the recipients of his mercy and his favor, and they bear real burdens in life. They face real trials and challenges, temptations. They wrestle with real doubts. Think about those people and those things. Make it a habit to think about those people and those things. This, of course, requires getting to know each other deeply. In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul Tripp suggests this exercise. He says, think of someone you believe you know really well. And now, try to identify some of the gaps in your understanding of his or her story. How much do you know of your friend's family of origin? Do you know where he struggles in his relationship with God or in his understanding of Scripture? What do you know about the quality of her marriage or the struggles she experiences with her husband? If he's single, do you know how he spends his hours alone? If she's a mother, does she think she's a failure? Could your friend be fighting disintegrating relationships at work or long-term problems with his extended family? Perhaps his heart is driven by lust or eaten up with bitterness. Might she harbor deep regret over a past decision? or jealousy over the success of a friend? Are there financial woes or physical problems? Clearly, the possibilities are endless. People are deep and complicated. And as we always say, everybody's normal until you get to know them. Paul Tripp goes on, we tend to have permanently casual relationships that never grow into real intimacy. And our effectiveness as ambassadors is blunted because we don't know others well enough to know where change is needed or where God is actively at work. That's what it means to consider one another. As you consider the members of your church, members of your MC and your discipleship huddle, are you getting to know people well enough to know where change is needed and where God is at work. That's the question to ask yourself. Make it a habit to just think through the people and think, do I know where God is at work in his life? Do do I know where she's praying for change, progress, growth, sanctification to happen in her life? This is one of the reasons that 
Our missional communities periodically set aside time for every participant, member of that group, to share his or her life story. Not not just a, a brief personal testimony conversion story, but a redemptive life narrative. This is my life in 20, 30 minutes. Why do we value that? Because Scripture calls us to consciously consider one another in order to spur each other on in works of love. And you can't do that if you don't know one another. So growing in the grace of visible community requires being intentional. Second, be present. In verse 25, the author further clarifies how to go about stirring up and provoking one another to love. And he first states this as a negative. Not neglecting. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That phrase, to meet together, refers to the gathering of the local church. It's talking about in-person, face-to-face, life-on-life gatherings of disciples of Jesus. And, And the Greek here actually stresses that this is personal, that you belong to this, that you have a stake, a share, you participate in this. It's not just a meeting together that you attend. It's our meeting. I think the NASB is the translation that captures the Greek the best. It says, not abandoning our own meeting together. It's possessive. We own this. We're in this together. This is emphatically personal and relational. Through Christ Jesus, you have access to God and a place at the table. Dietrich Bonhoeffer beautifully articulates the goodness of in-person gathering together in the Christian life when he writes, The believer need not feel any shame when yearning for the physical presence of other Christians as if one were still living too much in the flesh. A human being is created as a body. The Son of God appeared on earth in the body for our sake and was raised in the body. In the sacrament, the believer receives the Lord Christ in the body and the resurrection of the dead will bring about the perfected community of God's spiritual, physical creatures. Therefore, the believer praises the creator, the reconciler and the redeemer, God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit for the bodily presence of the other Christian. We thank God for that. That is a grace from God, the bodily presence of other Christians. And how do you provoke others to grow in loving works? By your bodily presence with them. You have to be present to do that. Or just think of it from the other direction. How does God intend to cause you to grow in loving works? Through the bodily presence of others in your life. And this is stated in the negative for a reason, not neglecting to meet together. The, the word really is stronger than neglect. Neglect sounds like maybe you weren't paying attention or you didn't get around to it. But the word translated neglect here echoes the language of covenant unfaithfulness throughout the Old Testament. This Greek word is used over 170 times in the Greek Old Testament. It's the term that describes Israel's covenantal unfaithfulness to God in places like Deuteronomy 28.20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. It's a covenantal word, forsaken me. Judges 2.12, and they abandoned the Lord, same word, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger, to forsake, to abandon. It's also the word used in the Greek Old Testament 
when God makes that precious covenantal promise to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the word has this sense of abandoning, forsaking those to whom you were committed, forsaking or deserting those to whom you bear some responsibility. It is a strong word meant to convey a strong warning not to forsake or abandon one another. And the seriousness of this exhortation is further emphasized by a sobering reality, the fact that this is not a hypothetical scenario. The author says, this is the habit of some. It's the thing about habits of grace, habits in general. It's not a matter of, are you going to have habits in your life? We all do. We have bad habits and good habits. Some make it a habit to forsake gathering together. The author of Hebrews probably had names and faces in mind as he penned those words, and his comment probably brought names and faces to mind for his audience. Perhaps you can think of people with whom you used to be in fellowship who are no longer walking with the Lord. It's one of the most painful realities of the Christian life. Immediately following this verse, the rest of Hebrews 10 is an urgent warning against sinning deliberately, verse 26, throwing away your confidence, verse 35, shrinking back, verse 38, urgent warning against turning away. The bodily presence of other Christians is one of the means that God uses to protect you from the deceitfulness of sin, from hardness of heart, from unbelief. So to grow in the grace of visible community, make it a habit to be present as God allows. As God allows. Finally, be engaged. The last instruction for growing in grace through community is stated positively here at the end of verse 25, but encouraging one another. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging one another is another way to spur others on in works of love. To encourage means to urgently, strongly exhort. An exhortation, it's like what? Athletes on a field in the heat of battle do to one another. When they shout things like, come on, let's go, keep it up, good job, try harder, you'll get it next time. There's a whole range of things we say in exhortation from instruction and encouragement to rebukes and warnings and reminders, but exhortation is always communication. It requires communicating. And this is especially clear in Acts 15.32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged, that's the same word, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. How do you encourage one another? You speak. You speak. You will primarily experience God's grace in visible community through the word. It's one thing to be together. It's another to be together and be speaking the truth in love to one another. As Paul says regarding our speech in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Have you ever pondered that? 
Did, did you know that? Did you know your speech can build people up? Did, did you know your speech can give grace? Your speech can give grace to those who hear. God intends to communicate his grace to other people through your words. That's incredible. The best way to edify others and provoke them to love is by talking about God's word and applying it to their lives and reminding people of the promises and the truths and the warnings and the comforts of scripture. The, the entire book of Hebrews, which is much more like a sermon than a letter, it, it's called a word of exhortation at the very end. Hebrews 13, 22, the author says right in the conclusion, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation for I have written to you briefly. It's not a short book but he considers it a brief word of exhortation. And it's packed with scripture. Over three dozen Old Testament scripture citations throughout this sermon. That doesn't mean you have to preach a sermon every time you see somebody else. But it does mean that caring for one another in the local church just involves the word. Here's Paul Tripp again. Personal ministry is not preaching to a very small congregation. Here's my captive audience. I'll preach to them. It's, it's the careful ministry of Christ and his word to the struggles of heart that have been uncovered by good questions from a committed friend. It's bringing God's word to bear in somebody's life. We, we call this gospel fluency. It's that ability to just talk naturally about the gospel and God's word as it relates to the everyday pressures and challenges and trials and frustrations and joys and ups and downs of everyday life. Talking about the gospel, that's what stirs us up. That's what warms our hearts. That's what motivates us to love and good deeds. This is what God gave us his word for. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. It's useful for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the best way to grow in your ability to speak God's word with gospel fluency like that is just to soak your own mind in it. The more familiar you are with God's word, the more readily it will come to your mind in other people's lives. When God is speaking to you through his word, you will find that God more frequently speaks through you by his word. Because you'll just, you might say, hey, I don't even know if this means anything to you, but this is what God is saying to me lately. And inevitably, somebody will be encouraged and strengthened by that. that. That's what it means to be engaged in gospel community. Gospel community is not something you attend and spectate and observe. It's something that you participate in by encouraging others with your words. You, you can be physically present and mentally, relationally checked out, right? How many times as a student did the teacher take attendance and call your name and you said present and you absolutely were not? It's one thing to be there, it's another to be engaged with people relationally, listening for the heart and speaking God's truth with love. So when you come together, come with something to share. That's the pattern that we see in, in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul writes, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation let all things be done for building up. What a picture of the body of Christ. When you come together, everyone comes with something. 
to share, to contribute, to communicate to somebody else. Being engaged in community in that way by exhorting and encouraging one another with words, that is the fruit of first being intentional, consciously considering people. Who are the people I'm going to see there? What's going on in their lives? What challenges are they facing? What joys are they celebrating? Making that a habit. And being committed to being present with one another. And letting God speak through you. Visible community is grace. And it's humbling, isn't it, when you think, God does not give that grace in the same measure to all people. Some believers are imprisoned for their faith. Some are sick and unable to attend regularly. Some people sacrifice everything to bring the gospel to unreached people where there are no churches yet. It's a great sacrifice. By God's grace, just look around you. Look at how generous God has been to you. You have access to one another. So may your participation in community with one another, whether Emmaus Road Church is your home church or you belong somewhere else and you're just passing through, may your participation in gospel community stir up more and more works of love for your good and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, it's so good for our hearts and minds to be reminded of your agenda for change in our lives. That this is what you're doing by your grace, causing us to increase and abound in love. May that be true here at Emmaus Road Church. And may it be true through our gathering together that our interactions whether it's Sunday morning, corporate worship on the Lord's Day, or informal, just getting together with friends, sharing a meal. May our interactions with one another be aimed at this, to build one another up, to spur one another on in love. That is grace. Only you can cause that fruit. So we are dependent on you for it, eager to experience it, earnest to participate in it, dependent on you and grateful to you for all that you have done in us for your glory. Oh God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We love you, Lord. Amen.